the evidence of the eyewitness testimony within the Gospels is overwhelming. There is no doubt that the modern church in America has failed its people by not teaching them the earliest stages of church history. Thank you for tuning into Facts, a podcast that primarily focuses on the church fathers, the apocryphal works, the canon of scripture, the text of scripture, and the scripture itself. You can find more information about us on explorechristianity.net. Thank you again for tuning in. Yes, thank you again for tuning in to this episode of Facts. Today, we're going to be discussing the book of Colossians. Now, one of the things that I noticed about the book of Colossians recently is the attack on it as being relevant to the Pauline corpus of letters. And the reason for that is the differences of, you guessed it, more than anything else, when things are disputed, it's because the syntax is different, or the language is different, or the themes are different. But what we have to do is, if you've been listening to this podcast for any length of time now, is to examine all the possibilities of why a difference would be involved. Why is it different? Well, we start with the basic understanding of most things. Is the audience different? Is the type of audience different in education, location? And are they battling different concepts or doctrines or heresies or pagan religions? What is different about the audience that would prompt a writer to write differently? And is the writer capable? of writing differently to that audience. When we talk about the Apostle Paul, one of the most educated of the Christians at the time, had a great wealth of knowledge, both in Judaism and apparently Greek culture, as well as his citizenship of being a Roman citizen, had a great understanding of the gods and the way paganism functioned in the Greco-Roman world. So when we talk about a book that has differences, our goal immediately is to not excuse it and remove it on the basis of difference, but examine the why factor. Why is it different or what is different? And and then once again, what, what we noted as well is that a lot of people focus on what's different, but not what is similar and same. And so there's more to the story than just differences. And there has to be a lot of reasoning behind the differences before we can conclude, yeah, this is absolutely different. This is a pseudo-apocryphal or this is straight up forgery, 100%, somebody impersonating Paul, etc. I just don't think we can start there. I think we need to do a lot more homework before we get to that conclusion. But let's talk about it. Let's talk about the historical attestation. You know the drill. If you've been following me for any length of time, when we go through books of the Bible and its authorship, We start with the historical attestation, and then we work to the internal evidence. When it comes to the historical attestation, really no one ever disputed this letter as being Pauline, except in the late 19th century. Uh, No one really ever disputed whether or not Paul was the original writer or somebody who was involved in, whether by the way of Nemenuensis or his own hand, writing this letter. Now, there's much dispute as to when and where this was written, and we'll get into that. But there is nothing in dispute in the earliest stages. For example, we'll go through a few of them. Irenaeus, the disciple of Polycarp, the disciple of John, states this 
in the fragments of the lost writings. Then again, Paul exhorts us to present our bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. That's Romans 12.1. And again, let us offer the sacrifice of praise. That is the fruit of the lips. And that's going into Hebrews 13.15. Now, those oblations are not according to the law. The handwriting of which the Lord took away from the midst by canceling it, Colossians 2.14. So he quotes three passages here, attributing all of them to Paul. And I don't know if you noted, the middle one is a Hebrew uh, discussion and that he affirms and seems to indicate and believe that Paul was also behind the book of Hebrews. Now, I did a whole episode in Hebrews. If you missed that, uh, go back. I do not believe Paul is the uh, writer of the book of Hebrews. I think he authorized it. I think he had a portion and a part in that. If you want more information, go back in the archives of our episodes. You'll find my work on the book of Hebrews. But here he attests both Romans, Hebrews, and the last quote by canceling out the handwriting of ordinances that were against us. He attributes that, that statement to Paul exhorting us. So he had no problem. And in other places, Irenaeus in about six or seven places, just in the lost writings and in book three, have attributed Paul to the book of Colossians. This is one of many. But we look at him. He came from the east and he was in modern day France. And then we look at Rome. So let's move over to Rome. Let's go further west. We have Hippolytus of Rome. He states, Paul the apostle teaches us saying, he is our peace, who made both one. And then blotting out the handwriting of sins that was against us, quoting the same verse, Colossians 2.14. This is one of the most commonly quoted verses by the early patristics and fathers utilizing the book of Colossians. They would, they would quote this passage in 2.14 quite frequently. And this was actually from the fragments of Hippolytus on the book of Daniel, where he's actually attributing to Paul. Again, Paul the Apostle teaches us that Christ had our sins that were held against us blotted out by his blood. So again, Hippolytus in Rome attributes Colossians and its teachings to Paul. Origin. So let's go further. Uh, started in Alexandria, worked over to Caesarea. He states, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. And he is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but for those of the whole world. Since he is the Savior of all men, especially of them that believe, who blotted out the written bond that was against us by his own blood and took it out of the way so that he, not even a trace, not even our blotted out sins, might still be found, nailed it to the cross, quoting Colossians 2.14, which he uses the statement here and attributes it again to the apostle going back to his commentary in the gospel of john in book six but origin again utilizing the same verse colossians 2 14 attributing it to paul and to the apostleship and its writing and authority in the church he also recognized it as well well let's go a little bit further down let's maybe hit north africa let's hit cyprian cyprian for example states also paul to the colossians here it is who is the image of the invisible god and the firstborn of every creature colossians 1:15 also in the same place the firstborn from the dead that he might in all things become the holder of the preeminence that's just a few verses later it's colossians 1:18 
So in the three books of the Testimonies Against the Jews, this is book two, Cyprian states, Paul to the Colossians. How about John Chrysostom? Let's go back to the East, the Eastern churches. He says, for the church of Christ, according to St. Paul, is Christ's body, which is an allusion to Colossians 1 again. And he makes reference to that twice. Paul makes reference to that twice, Colossians 1, verse 18, as well as verse 24. And Chrysostom in On the Priesthood, Aesthetic Treaties, and the Select Homilies, the Letters, Homilies of the Statutes, Treaties Concerning the Christian Priesthood, Book 4. You can find all of these quotes there by John Chrysostom. And he states clearly, it is by St. Paul. He tells the church that we are the body of Christ. And he's, he's alluding there to the teaching of Colossians 1.18 and 24, giving credit to Paul. Again, there's so many places we go, I and mean, we can look at Tertullian, even Justin Martyr uh, utilizes the book of Colossians, attributing it to Paul and his work. We can pretty much summarize quite a bit of Paul's writings just from Justin Martyr very early on. So we see from the mid-2nd century, the late 2nd century into the 3rd century, we have all of this attestation from multiple places in the world. Western Europe, Eastern Europe, down into the Eastern Asia minor region, down into Africa, North Africa, you know, Egypt, all of that. We have all of this attestation, even centralized closer to Jerusalem with Caesarea and Antioch. We have all of these writers who have attributed to us, Paul is the writer behind the book of Colossians. There is no dispute. There is none. No one ever disputed it. Nobody had a difference of an opinion in the early church. Now, let's talk about the background of the letter itself. The epistle to the Colossians was clearly being written, and the purpose of it being written was based on some information that had come in from Epaphras. And he apparently had approached Paul about what was taking place in the church. You can find that in verses 6 through 8 of chapter 1. And Epaphras had given him information where Paul actually had to respond to it. Now, what's interesting about Colossians is there is a debate about whether or not Paul had ever gone to that region and actually started this church, or if they were just a church plant of a church plant. So he started the mother church, and this is like a sister church or daughter church that he had nothing to do with. And the reason people believe that is because of what he says later in the letter. He said, I would that you know what great conflict I have for you and for those in Laodicea and for as many has not seen my face in the flesh. So some would say, well, then Paul clearly had never visited the church of Colossae. I don't know if we can take that statement and go, okay, he definitely never been there because he said there's people there that he had never seen in the face. Well, that could be indicated that there are people that are there who have come to faith since last his visit. And I'm going to show you in a minute that he has actually been to Colossae on a couple of occasions. So the question is, did Paul ever actually visit Colossae? Uh, because that would attribute to the background of this book. I mean, sure, I guess an apostle could write to a church he's never visited, but it seems like in most of Paul's letters, his relationship with the audience is essential to exercising apostolic authority. Not that... He would need to have that connection relationship to exercise apostolic authority in an apostolic church. But boy, it really goes a long way when you know the people and they know you. 
and there's a trust factor. And that just seems to be the case with Paul. Now, it's been concluded by some that he's never been, but I, and I used to hold that position. I would say there was a time I held that position. Uh, I no longer hold that position. I think he actually has been to the area. Uh, it has been suggested, however, that Paul says later on, though I am absent in the flesh, yet I am with you in the spirit. So he, he tells the church, he said, look, I, I'm, I'm not with you bodily, but, but I am with you in spirit. Some would actually say, well, see, that just supports that he was never there. Well, no, actually, there's an interesting word that he uses here that we, we need to actually examine because the language here strongly indicates that he had formerly been to the city of Colossae and had started and known the people in the church and in the Colossian church. Now, the word here, epemi, is the word, epemi in Greek, is properly used when somebody is absent and has to leave and go away from a place where he was once a part of. So the idea is the person has left a place of which absence is predicated. And that is exactly the language he used there in that section in verse 5. So I don't believe at all that he was just some absent person who never knew these people. There is definitely a relational connection to the church, but there's also the reality that there are people both in Colossae and in Laodicea that he does not have a relationship with and says, many have not seen my face in the flesh. He didn't say all of you. He just said many of them had not seen him in the flesh. So in support of this, uh, hypothesis I'm giving you, it also demonstrates in Acts 16, verse 6, and Acts 18, 23, that Paul had visited Fergia, in which Colossae is the chief city of Fergia, and he'd been there twice. His familiar acquaintance with many of the Colossians actually revealed this. Uh, he mentions Epaphras, as we've already talked about. Archippus is mentioned. Philemon is mentioned. Uh, Aphia, who's probably the wife of Philemon, and his connection now with the runaway slave, which we'll get to when we cover Philemon, Onesimus. There's a lot more word connections to people in the book of Colossians than there is in any book like Ephesians, for example. So he does have inside people who are leaders and messengers of the church corresponding the message. I, I don't believe we can walk away differently. Tychicus is another. So we begin to see some interesting things unravel here that I just don't believe Paul was an absent person from this church and never had met them, visited them, maybe one or two leaders. It seems like he had been amongst them at one point, stated that he had to leave, but that he desired to come back. But in the meantime, he was there with them in spirit, just not body. Now, it is most likely written during Paul's first imprisonment at Rome, probably around 57, 58. Now, th this is what's ironic to me, because the real debate is actually here as to what location. Some have suggested that this was written from Caesarea, uh, where he had a slight short-term uh, imprisonment in his endeavor too. Some would say that this was a part of his second imprisonment, it's really hard to say. And honestly, I can see both. 
the first and second imprisonment. I'm even enamored by the concept of his time in Caesarea. I think there's problems. I think it breaks down. But I do believe that when it comes to the timing of this letter, it is very difficult to actually pin a specific timeline of the book. Because it's either, in my opinion, going to be around his first or second imprisonment. It's definitely a prison epistle uh, in, in relation to what he states. So it could be around the spring of 57 or maybe even a little bit later. And apparently it's soon after the epistle to the Ephesians, which it's going to contain numerous coincidences, similarities, syntax, etc., which is one of the biggest arguments about this. Now, the date of the spring of 57 or maybe a little bit later can be supported, I think, the most. Not by much, but I do think it has the most evidence. Well, a couple things. One, Timothy was with Paul at the time. He mentions that in verse one, that he's with him. If you compare that to, say, Philippians chapter number two, verse 19, it kind of gives us an idea of, okay, when is Timothy with Paul, not with Paul? Because in the second imprisonment, Timothy is being written to in Ephesus because Timothy is no longer with Paul, both in first and second Timothy. So there's there's a, a timeline here of when Timothy's with Paul, not with Paul. Um, so he has Epaphras. Um, he had lately come from the area of Asia Minor, somewhere in that region. Uh, he's brought up uh, as well in verse 4 and verse 7, verse 9. Again, if you compare that with Philippians 2, Philippians 4, you find another companion, similar timeline in Paul's life and ministry. Now he's with Paul. He mentions it in Colossians 4, verse 2, which I will read for us as well. He said, uh, continue earnestly in prayer, being vigilant in it with thanksgiving, meaning prayer also for us that God would open a door for us in the word to speak the mystery of Christ. For I am now in chains. So Epaphras is with him. He has come from Colossae, and Paul is saying he's with me while I'm in an imprisonment. So that compared to what we find later in Colossians or in, later in Philippians, compared to here in Colossians, we find ourselves with two companions in an imprisonment, and that is more compatible with what we read about Paul in Philippians 2 and in Philippians 4. So Paul's in prison. He'd been preaching while in prison. Look at verse 3 of chapter 4 if you're following along. If not, you can listen. He states uh, very clearly that he wanted their prayers, that God would give them an opening to speak boldly the word. He said that I may make it manifest as I ought to speak, verse 4. So he has the freedom to continue to speak to people while in prison, which is consistent with what we find in Acts. Because in Acts, if you go to Acts 28, people would visit Paul and he was speaking boldly and proclaiming clearly the words of God while in prison. He did not have that when he was in prison to be executed by Nero, a little bit different situation. So let me just refresh our mind in Acts chapter 28 where we find this boldness and ability to speak the word of God where people visited him. Look at verse 30 of Acts 28. Paul dwelt two whole years in his own rented house, received all who came in, preaching the kingdom of God and teaching the things which concern the Lord Jesus with all confidence, no one forbidding him. 
So that so what he said in Colossians four, what he's what is said of him in Acts twenty eight, seems consistent to his ability compared to his second imprisonment. Various friends were with him at the time. He gives you a whole list of them. Verse seven of chapter four of Colossians, Tychicus, he says a faithful servant in the Lord and minister. Uh, he continues to bring other names into the equation, some of which I'd already mentioned to you. We mentioned Epaphras. He also mentions um, Aristarchus. Uh, Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, is mentioned there. Uh, and then you go through the end there. He gives you a whole list of names of people that are with him, uh, Archippus and others. He has friends around him, people coming to him, opportunity to boldly speak and proclaim. It's quite incredible. It's quite incredible that the ability he had and the freedom he had while in chains. So to me, this seems to be a part of the first imprisonment, not the second. Now, containing in this, you, he mentions Tychicus in verse 7, which I just read to you. He said, Tychicus, a beloved brother, faithful, fellow servant in the Lord, will tell you all the news about me. Now, this is important to noting Paul's chain of custody. We mentioned this on this program multiple times. The respected writer, the respected audience had a respected middleman. Uh, the carrier of the letter is essential. And he's telling you in the letter most often who the deliverer of the message is. It seems to be two. Uh, and in my personal opinion, we'll get to this when we hit Philemon, that the book of Philemon and Colossians were given at the same time. Uh, I think they were traveling together. The writings are very similar. The syntax is very similar. But I think Colossians and Philemon were sent at the same time. One was delivered to the corporate church. The other was deliver, delivered to the man who was hosting the church, and that is Philemon himself. So I think there's two carriers on this, Tychicus on his second journey and Onesimus carrying the letter. If you go to verse 7, we mentioned Tychicus himself, but look at verse 9. He says, with Onesimus, a faithful and beloved brother, who is one of you, that will make known to you all the things which are happening here. So there's two messengers, two respected people, two people who are known, Onesimus, as well as uh, Tychicus. And so I think they're both delivering this message. And, and Onesimus is going to be a celebratory one because he has now come to faith. He has become a follower of Christ. He was a runaway slave. He was known by that, not so much in a good way, but he was known. Uh, I mean, think about it. If, if he was a slave Philemon, he ran away. The church is in Philemon's house. Everyone knows about it. So he is a person known to them, known to Philemon, and then Tychicus. And, and it's interesting that most of the time the carrier of the letter is one individual. Here it's two. It's almost like Tychicus was sent to validate both Onesimus as a new convert and a follower of Paul and a testimony of what Paul was teaching in relation to the church. So it could be there's two carriers because Paul sent someone to validate not only his letter, but Onesimus's conversion. We'll get more into that when we hit Philemon. So what we see is the carriers in this. So then it comes down to then what is the dispute here? Like what's the big idea? Well, number one, everybody assumes that the book of Colossians is copying the book of Ephesians. Now, it may very well be similar. Now, let's think about this for a minute, because Ephesians and uh, Colossians, the cities, not far from each other, uh, they deal with a lot of the same problems. Uh, 
They're both very intellectual cities. They have great wealth of knowledge, places of access, places of availability. They have a lot of the same sin problems. They have the same a lot of pagan problems. So we should expect the intellectual level of Colossae and Ephesus to be the same. They're very close. The types of culture are very close. And we do not see Paul's lack of ability to change gears in writing to churches of different prominence. Look, for example, the way he wrote to the Galatian church was very different than how he wrote to the, to the Corinthian church. Though there's similar themes, his purpose in writing and his, his reasoning for that writing is often very different because the problems are different. The issues are different. The people are different. The location is different. The culture is different. Paul had to instruct people in Rome very differently than how he instructed people in Philippi. This is a reality that we have to deal with. The, the, the problems were not all the same in the same churches. Some of them were. So the ones that have similar problems, we should f really expect similar rebukes or similar instructions or similar encouragements that are given in the letters. But here, everybody wants to jump on the bandwagon of, well, you know, Colossians is the stealing from Ephesians. Uh, well, one, we're assuming that Paul is not the writer of Ephesians. Therefore, uh, somebody is stealing from another somebody. We don't know who those somebodies are. We don't have a way to trace them. We just know that they're later forgeries or later uh, possibly at best followers of Paul or lovers of Paul who ended up trying to carry on some of his traditions and teachings. We don't know who they are. We don't have a way to pinpoint, uh, pinpoint them in history. We don't have a way to access any historical attestation that would allude to such thing. It just seems like they're stealing from each other because of the layout. And let's just be real. Here's the layout openings. They open the same way. You have sender, recipient. You have the regular greetings. Uh, you have the Thanksgiving, faith, hope, love toward the community which you don't have in Ephesians, you have more of a blessing, a prayer in, in this mystery of Christ from verses 3 to 14. But then the body itself, the letter's body, very similar in layout, prayer for faith, prayer for well-being. You go through all these. You, you have the, the layout, and there are similar layouts, the way it concludes. I would argue Ephesians is actually very different in a lot of ways. Ephesians is longer and I think better organized when it comes to theological treaties or systematic approach. Ephesians is a little bit more organized, in my opinion. Um, but somewhat more generic, too, uh, than Colossians. Uh, there's no specific opponents. There's no false teachings that are strictly identified in Ephesians, the way that you see them in great detail deconstructed in the book of Colossians. Uh, theological ideas are way more developed, in my opinion. The language is even more high church in Ephesians and Colossians. Uh, Colossians has far more personal instruction and far more personal connection. For example, I mentioned all of these names. There's no greeting in Ephesians to individuals in the community at the end of the book. If you go to Ephesians 6, it's not comparable to Colossians 4. There is no similarity 
in its layout to personal relationships. There's no greeting to individuals in the community at the end of 6 of Ephesians, which is surprising given the fact that Paul lived there for well over two and a half to three years. I mean, you see the associates. We mentioned all of these names earlier as compared to Paul in Ephesians, Tychicus. So you do have a connection between Tychicus and from Colossians Ephesians, but what about all the other people? You know, there's not a long list of names, and he spent far more time there, clearly, than he did in Colossae. Also, you, you do see uniqueness of Colossians separated from Ephesians or the other Pauline corpus. There's well over 30 words in Colossians, which are not found in any other New Testament book. So when one removes those that are due to the differences of this subject, the total is not any greater than in some of the Pauline letters that are accepted. The omission of familiar Pauline particles, the use of his genitives or pas, all in, in the Greek, and of many of the synonyms, you find multiple parallels from Colossians to other books like 1 Corinthians or 1 Thessalonians, especially Philemon, which is undisputed. So I, I don't buy into this. And then we even talked about Philippians a little bit. Like, I just, I don't buy into this. The Christology, the doctrine of Christ, has very close similarity of Philippians, which is why I just mentioned that. It's very close in development as it relates to Corinthians, like in chapter 8 and chapter 15. Especially Christ's work in his pre-incarnate state, if you would. Especially, I mean, when you compare, if you start comparing Christ in Colossians 1 to some of the things that Paul has stated about Christ in 1 Corinthians as well as in Philippians chapter 2, very similar Christology. So I don't buy into this. Difference. Why is it different? Well, the people are different. His relationship with them is different than the people he has a relationship with in, Coloss in, in, in Corinth versus Colossae, or in Philippi versus Colossae, or in Rome versus Colossae. Also, the problems are very different. Colossae is dealing with a different problem of Christology that Galatia is not dealing with. Galatia has issues going on as it relates to Judaism. Now, there is similarity again between Colossians dealing with some of the Judaism, not much like you see in Galatians, but you do see the same characteristics. But the main issues are not the same issues. Corinth has major issues of division over spiritual gifts over dealing with the poor, over sexual immorality in the church. You don't have that problem in Colossae. I would not expect Paul to be identical in writing to them the same way. This is an unbelievable assertion to continually make on these texts that they cannot be different because the writer should be the same every single way. When you have a different audience, a different problem within the audience, different leaders, different times, Paul's not writing these at the same exact time, side by side by side by side. Some of them are, but not all of them. The occasion, Paul's mental and emotional state is different. He's in prison versus just traveling freely. 
Though he's under house arrest, it seems like, he still says he is in prison. That would change the trajectory of the writer's emotional state versus somebody who's writing freely. Paul's own development as a Christian, he is growing in his knowledge of Christ. He constantly asks prayer for that. Therefore, I would expect there to be some difference there too. When we talk about the people, the writers, the messengers, they are all different. The cities are different. The culture is different. I would expect Ephesus and Colossae to be very similar. They're not far from each other and they're dealing with the same problems as compared to what's going on all the way in Rome or someone in Philippi or someone in Galatia. I would expect those to be different. Different area, different problems, different region, different cultures. Very different. The monuments, the gods, the goddesses, different from Ephesus to Corinth. I would expect there to be a different approach. I don't understand why different means automatically the writer is different. Paul writing different style. Yes, he seems to be a lot more educational and developed in these writings. It seems like his audience is capable of, of dealing with it. He tells some churches he came to them with simplicity. But in other cases, he doesn't give that clarifying clause. He doesn't say, I didn't come to you with excellency of words. He does say that to some. Why does he say that in all of his letters? Because at times he maybe did come to them with excellency of words. He had the ability to do it. Just look at the record of him teaching in the book of Acts. The occasion would change. Let, let, me, let me give a modern illustration. I'll use myself. Everywhere I go, in, in fact, including including a opportunity when I was being interviewed to teach apologetics at the current high school that I'm teaching it. When I was in the room with some of the deans, their concern was the, the, the concepts that I have developed and taught might be too much for high schoolers. But over time I have learned mostly because I had to be a pastor for about five and a half years I had to learn to speak differently to the church members that were not educated and the same levels that the Lord has blessed and graced me with the opportunities to learn in. They want to be there. A lot of these church members want to be there and some are, but as a majority, they were not as developed in their understanding of a subject the way that I was. And I had to learn not to speak the same way I would at a college class. Like when I taught at, uh, for example, when I was doing some of the work for Malaysia Baptist Theological Seminary, when I was teaching some of those classes, I would take it to a higher level than when I'm teaching it to a church on the basics of canonicity. So my lessons on canonicity to the high school class is different from the one that I do from the church, the regular church people, like when I spoke at a conference a few months ago with John Beasley. And then when I was teaching Malaysia Baptist Theological Seminary, I took it to a higher level because they're seminary students. I change gears, same subject sometimes, different levels of teaching it because of the audience. Why would we expect Paul to do any different based on his audience? Jesus did it the way Jesus taught 
to certain people was different. The way he interacted with the Jewish religious leaders was different than how he dealt with the tax collector or how he dealt with the common man who is a fisherman or just somebody who is a carpenter or a tradesman. When you look at Jesus's approach, he changed gears too. Paul would have been very capable of doing this. I don't understand why this is a problem for people to see in a letter, which automatically equals it's different, not the same. To me, there's a major problem. To me, there's a major issue here. We need to establish ourselves better on these subjects so that we do not rush to these conclusions and make conclusions that dismiss authorship because of difference. The differences may be on purpose and the writer may be purposely doing so. And then another one, another one that I mentioned here a lot, which I don't think is as much a factor here is the amanuensis is different. If you have a different amanuensis, you're going to, you're going to see some of the writer come out. We talked about Tertius in the book of Romans. We see Paul writing uh, his own signature, indicating somebody else was writing the rest. And he wrote the signature. He mentions names as well. It could be the amanuensis is different, and that shows up in the letters as well. It seems like as Paul got older, he would not write his own letters. Others would do it for him. Either way, it does not matter to the reality that there are multiple reasons why a letter can contain differences. But as we demonstrated a minute ago, it's not just differences. There are similarities in sameness all through this writing. The comparisons of 1 Corinthians, comparisons to Philippians, comparisons to Philemon. What about the things that are the same? Well, then they're stealing it from each other. You know, he's stealing it from Ephesians or he's stealing it from this other stuff. But again, where's the basis of that? Where's the historical attestation of that? These are things that have to be proved, not just a hypothesis without evidence. And we're assuming, again, that those letters are not Paul too. It's not stealing if it's, a certain same, if it's the same writer in Ephesians and the same writer in Philippians and the same writer in Philemon. He's not stealing. He's the same guy with the same personality and the same mindset. I, I just, I think we have to do a lot of backpedaling here. We got to undo a lot of history. We got to create ideas that have never been used or heard for. I, look, I tell Christians this too. This isn't just a knock on skeptics or, or people that are trying to dismiss the scripture. I tell people in Christianity this too. If your view has never been heard before in the history of the church, we've had now just almost 2,000 years of church from the time of Jesus forward. We're almost at the 2,000 year mark here. If your view has never been attested or supported or rehearsed or given at any point in any part of the world of history with your understanding of something, there's a good chance you made it up and it's not true or you're just wrongly informed. The thing is, when something has never been attested the way that it is for many, many years later, detached from the original timing and the people and the historians and the audiences and, and, and all that is encompassed in that, there's a good chance that we are wrong. And in this situation, again, I think they're, they are wrong. I think there's a lot of wrong here. So when we're talking about the book of Colossians, is it a forgery? Is it a Pauline forgery? I do not believe so. I believe it is a authentic letter. And again, by the data that I've demonstrated on this program a few times now, when you look at the place like the BNTC, 
which is a collection in, in England of college professors. These are all PhDs, by the way. I heard somebody misuse this chart. Say, oh, well, Stephen used that chart, but we don't know who these people are. We don't know their credentials if they're academics. Yes, we do. You have to have a PhD to be in these meetings and discussions. These are not just conservative, evangelical-only people. These are a collection of professors, academics in England who meet, who do have to hold PhDs in New Testament studies to be participants. It's right there on their website. You can read it, BNTC. In the vote they did amongst themselves, they, you know, roughly, they probably had about 109, 110 people voting on this stuff. Colossians, whether or not it was a Pauline authorship, out of that, 56 said, yes, it was Paul. 17 said, no. 36 said they were uncertain. So if we're going by a majority here, the majority say yes to the minority say no to the medium there, uncertain. But even if you take the no and the uncertain and combine it together, so-called Colossians is still in the so-called majority. Either way, it, it doesn't really... Again, I don't think this is the way we do data. I don't think uh, surveys and uh, the consensus is the definite truth. The truth does not lie in the consensus. The truth relies in, it lies in the evidence. Truth is not in the consensus. The truth is in the evidence. Consensuses are always changing, but everybody likes to appeal to the consensus. So I want to point out the fact that the consensus does not identify necessarily, because this is actually a real consensus, not a made up one. This is a consensus that was done and the majority do believe that it is Pauline. So, so when you're in the belief system that Colossians is Pauline, don't think for a minute that, oh, well, you're out of touch with reality. You're not in the scholarly consensus. Yeah, that's not true. That's not true at all. It is Pauline, in my opinion. I do believe it is a true letter of Paul written in his first imprisonment while he was under house arrest in Rome written and given by the letter, uh, uh, you know, uh, Tychicus and Onesimus delivered it for Paul. That was the chain of custody connection. And they carried it back to Colossae and Laodicea, which it was told in that letter to read when they were done to make a copy pretty much and send it to Laodicea for them to read as well. And I do believe Paul had been to that church before, maybe not as long as he was in Ephesus, but I do believe he had been there before and he knew many of the people in the church and they knew him as well, but that there were many new converts that he did not yet know and was looking forward to meeting them face to face. Well, again, thank you for tuning into this podcast. We appreciate your support. We appreciate those that are listening in and carrying us out. A lot of people have been sharing these episodes lately, giving it to people on social media. Continue to do that for us. Continue to share it. Get the word out as we continue to grow this podcast. Grace and peace to you. God bless.